you're ready. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this third part of our podcast series about how technology is transitioning our, our daily lives in South Africa and on, on the African continent. Today, I've got the special honor of welcoming our guest, uh, Isaac Potgieter, who is an architect, uh, architect by training, but has transitioned into virtual reality. And, and we're going to explore that a bit and, and see what he's busy doing. My name is Herman Meiberg from the Institute for Intelligence Systems, where I head the Metaverse Research Unit. And it's truly an honor to, to have you with us today. So, so Isaac, um, you say architecture what wasn't enough for you, so you are transitioning into virtual architecture. I very quickly realized that it's a lot more fun to design in the digital world than the real world, and oh. a lot less admin. Okay, that, that, that's excellent. And, and you've got the undo button, which, which always exactly. makes life. Exactly. You can uh, just control Z the contractor's work yeah. in the virtual reality. So, so tell us a bit about yourself. Where, where do you come from? What, what are you currently busy with? Um, in, in terms of your studies and, and your life? Yeah, well, firstly, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. No, it's our honor. Um, yeah, well, where do we start? We start at the start, don't we? I, I grew up in Emlathlen in Pumalanga. I did my undergrad in architecture in Pretoria. I was very keen on doing architecture since as far back as I can remember. Uh, that ended swiftly when I started working in an office and realized that it's, um, it's quite a hectic industry. So I went to do my postgrad here at UJ. Um, it was it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it, and it really geared me towards this career. So very quickly, I did one project in honors. My lecturers looked at me. They said, "You need to work in virtuality and video games. This is clearly your interest." And I said, "But I have no background in this." And they said, "No, this is where you need to head." So they really pushed me in the direction, and I'm very grateful they pushed me in that that direction. I um spent both my honors and my master's working with architecture, digital architecture, and in architecture and video games, built some video games. And that kind of just snowballed into this. So I'm currently doing my PhD in metaverse studies, and I'm looking at virtual reality and how virtual reality can be used to represent cultural heritage and contested histories. Okay, so, so contested histories. Tell me a bit more about that. Um, I know we, we've got a a rich history in, in contested histories, so, so tell us a bit about oh, I think every country has a rich history in contested histories. You know, um, when it comes to history, I think we tend to decide what it means and then move on. So time goes on. Once enough time has passed between an event and the present, we kind of give it a label. We say this is what something used to be, and then we go beyond. But we rarely have the ability to access history from a first-person perspective. It's somehow hard for us to realize that history actually happened to real people, real people who laughed and cooked and had their own complex, complex behaviors and so on. We kind of see the past as having happened to robots. I don't know. This is the experience I've had when talking to people about this. So when working with virtual reality, I always ask myself, how does this not just be a gimmick? Because when new technology comes up, it's very easy to kind of just play with the novelty of it because it's there. It's something that's still new to us. But with this, the real value I see is the fact that you're able to access a history, access a time, access a place through the perspective of someone that actually would have been there. You know, it's not one as to one, obviously. Nothing can ever replace the real lived experience, but it gives that opportunity. So I've been looking at having interviews of actual ex-residents who went through this experience, who used to live in Sapphire Town, 
and just tell their stories. Come in from a fresh perspective, not think about what's been written about it, what's been said about it. We kind of have this golden age, Miriam Akeba view of what it was, and it was also that, but it was also these small stories that average people who used to live there have to tell and that they have cherished all their lives. I mean, I showed this work to one man. He was seven years old when Sophiatown got demolished in the 1950s. And um, he, he looked at me and he said, take me to the cinema now. I want to go to the cinema. And I took him to the cinema in virtual reality. And he said, that used to be a double neon sign, not a single neon sign. The movie posters were on the left, not the right of the door. He was seven when he had that experience. It's incredible, um, you know, how deep, how deep these memories go. Yes, yes. So, so you're recreating Sophia Town. Any, any specific area of, of Sophia Town, or is it is it just a, a overall look at, at Sophia Town? Yes, so it's recreating what Sophia Town looked like in virtual reality. And maybe I should start by just saying why. So I've been working with the Trevor Huddleston Center, which is the museum in Sophia Town, and they've kind of been the stewards of Sophia Town's history. And... What happens now is they take you on a tour. It's a great tour. I would recommend it to anyone. But the guy takes you for a walkabout and he says, this used to be here. That used to be here. Here where this lady's uh, Yorkies are barking at you, that used to be the biggest cinema in Africa. Here where this um, fence is falling over, that used to be, I don't know, the biggest club in Sophia Town. Okay, you, you have that experience. So where I saw this, you know, fulfilling a role, is where people can go on this VR experience first actually see what used to be there. I mean, even for me doing research, I didn't realize just how much was going on there. It, it's, it's really, it hits differently when you actually can physically see what was lost, mm. just the sheer magnitude of it. It's a, it was a whole city. And going through that and then going on that tour, you know, that's where I could see it providing a lot of value. Um, what was your question? I just wanted to give some background on that first. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're you're recreating Sophia Town. Is, mm. is it specific to any era oh, yes. or of, of time? Or um, it, it is. It's specific to an era and an area. So it's it's looking at around the time of the demolition in the 1950s, early 1960s, and the reason for that is mostly because, you know, if I'm doing interviews, um, it people are still alive that experience that moment in time. Less so people who maybe experienced it in the 1920s, but that was also the, the kind of golden era of Sophia Town, at least in our collective imaginations. Um, in terms of the area chosen, it's an area along Good Street specifically, which is where the biggest cinema, the Odin Cinema, used to be. It was kind of the high street of Sophia Town in many ways. And it's also chosen because that's the area that I could get the most data on. It was the area that was spoken about the most. Um, and yeah, it's, it seemed to hold a very special place in that neighborhood back in the day. Yes, yes. And, and in terms of going out and speaking with people, do, do they offer this, this information freely? Is it, is it uh, somewhat of a, a sensitive subject? How do you experience uh, your, your discussions with, with people? So I'm, I'm still in the process of doing the interviews but, you know, one thing that surprised me is, um, maybe not even surprised me, but older people love to tell about their youth. That, that's just true in general for mm -hmm. everyone. I mean, my, my grandmother would sit with me for hours and talk about her, her stories. So actually, no, people really, um, people are really open to talking about it. I went to the District 6 Museum recently in Cape Town, and it was a wonderful experience. And there, because District 6 happened a bit more recently, um, they still had a lady who used to live there that gave the tour. 
Yes, and she couldn't stop talking. The moment, the moment she realized there were South Africans in the museum, because it's usually French, French, German, German, Dutch. And then when she heard that I was from South Africa, she was so surprised, which is quite, quite sad, actually, mm. that it's, uh, it was a surprise for that a South African is actually trying to engage with this history. Yeah, right. And um, she, she, you know, it was great. She just kept on telling me all these stories. And you can see it's, it's cathartic in many ways. And I, I think that that's an important point that you're bringing up. We as South Africans often forget our own mm. uh, our own histories, and and we tend to shy away from discussing it, from opening up this this can of worms about Sophia Town and District Six, um, which is it's sad. It, it truly is. We we need to be discussing this ma these matters mm. and and getting our healing through through open communication. Mm. Um, so so yeah. I, your your work is quite interesting. Uh, what you you said that um, you you did a lot of interviews. T tell me a bit about the, about those interviews. How how did that shape your you choosing Sophia Town? Yeah. So when I looked at these kinds of projects, cultural heritage projects done in virtual reality across the globe, most of them are in Europe, a few in America, and then sprinklings here and there in Asia and so on. They all do one of two things for the most part. They either recreate what the site, the physical site looks like today. Might be some Roman ruins that you scan and you put it in VR, you can have a look around. As if you're a real tourist going there. And then the other kind of thing that's done is they try to reconstruct it in virtuality. Okay, you take your Roman ruins and then you do some 3D modeling magic and you make it look a little bit like it would have looked like when it was new. But for me, it's still missing something very key when we engage with cultural heritage, and that's, of course, the intangible side, the actual human perspective. You know, it's one thing to visit a Roman temple and see, okay, that the, co the columns used to be red, that's what that used to look like, cool. It's another thing to go and maybe witness a, an actual ceremony taking place or a ritual or a festival. So for me, what I wanted to do from the start of this is take that a step further, the whole way of representing cultural heritage and virtual reality, because if we can get the first-person perspective, we can get those human stories in there, if we can show real events that happen in the space. So it's not just physically buildings and streets that mm. you say, okay, I get it, this is what it used to look like. You're actually having an experience, you're getting a window into the culture of this place. I think that's really a crucial part that's missing today. And with Sophia Town, the fact that it didn't happen that long ago, I can still have interviews with people that had these experiences. Um, that was instrumental in choosing Sophia Town, the fact that I'm, I have access to that knowledge. It's not lost yet. Yes, and yes. I can try and work out a methodology for bringing that in. Yeah, You, so you can capture that whilst it's still alive. Yeah. I, I also just think, you know, Sophia Town is a very typical example of something that happened in every single place in South Africa, really. And, you know, you were just saying earlier, when we talk about our history in South Africa, I think... Um, we kind of stopped at Nelson Mandela, but there's still so much more that, that we're not aware of or actively aware of or, that, or that's hard for us to access. I mean, a version of this, the demolition of Sophia Town, it happened in District 6 in Cape Town, Cato Manor in Durban. Um, even in my small town where I'm from, the township got, or the, the area got demolished back in the 1950s to create separation. This was a violent act that was committed pretty much everywhere. And mm. it still defines the way our cities look like. And I just don't think that's something that we engage with enough. You know, I think for me, I kind of 
there was one paragraph about Sophia Town in grade four, and that was the extent of us talking about it. Yes, yes. Or any of these kinds of places, even though it literally just a few kilometers away where these histories happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, if I think of Sophia Town, I, I think of Maria Makeba and, and the jazz music that, that came from that. But that, that's all I know about the mm. history of it. And I, I think using virtual reality as a medium um, of conveying this the story, it, it, it truly is a powerful way of, of doing it. And, and then the viewer becomes part of, of this history. Part, it, they, they become a, a vital core player mm. in, in experiencing it. It just hits differently. Reading in a textbook that so many people were evicted in the 1950s, okay, you go on with your day, but being in there and listening to these real stories and seeing, oh, this happened to real people and these are the very human ways it affected them, mm. it just hits very differently. And yeah. I think we need to engage with our history on that kind of level, yes, yes. a much less superficial level. No, de definitely. So, so in terms of the process, you mentioned a bit about uh, doing 3D scans, but that, that's not really available to you right now. You, you can't go out and do a 3D scan of Sophia Town. Yes, it's, it's all gone. I mean, two homes survived, one which is part of the Trevor Holson Center, one which is in absolute ruins, and I think a single wall. The guy even showed me this wall um, used to be an original wall. It's yeah, just a yeah. short wall. It's all gone, which is insane because just the sheer amount of stuff that used to go on there. So no, I can't go in and scan it like I would a Roman ruin or however it would be. So traditionally, people would either go and scan these sites, whether they're in ruins or whether they're still um, you know, in a good state, or they would work off of photographs. Now, this is also a problem because Sophia Town and, and all these places that were demolished during the Group Areas Act they weren't seen, of, seen as having any value by the, by the apartheid regime. I mean, of course they weren't. That's why they were demolished. So they weren't photographically documented very well, except for maybe some few freelance photographers here and there. Mm. Um, Jürgen Scharberg, especially, who did a lot of great work. So you can't recreate the place just from that. So m for me, the m core thing that I'm interested in is, can we recreate this history from oral sources? And I mean... What excites me about this is, if you, I, I mentioned where most of these projects are, they're in Europe, because there you can still visit the, the ruin of the temple, there you can still go to Versailles, whatever it may be. But in the Global South, most of our cultural sites, or a lot of cultural sites, have been erased during colonialism, where it's in Africa, South America, wherever it may be. So you can't go and visit these spaces as easily, or if you do, they're in a very degraded state, for the most part. And also, a lot of our history was recorded orally. You know, that's, there was a different way of recording history in, in the global south, in Africa, than there was for the West. So how can we give legitimacy, legitimacy to these sources? Mm. And how do we turn a story from an old lady into a building? You know, that's, yeah. quite, a, that's quite a process. So how do you do that? Oh, how do you do that? <laughs> You know, I just try to be very descriptive. I try to ask for spatial descriptions as much, of, as much as possible. And people tend to be very attached to different spaces in their lives. I mean, even if you think of, I don't know, your childhood home, you can remember that quite clearly. Mm. We, we kind of mediate experience through space, or at least as an architect or trained in architecture, that's what I believe, and that's what, that's what I found. So you try to access that, and you try to get as much 
information out of that as possible. So that if someone says, okay, we rebuilt the street, why does it look that way? You can say, yeah, because this lady told me it looks that way. And that should be enough of a source because yeah. she was there. It was her experience. Yeah. Have you ever come across any, any conflict? You know, an old lady saying it was like this and a, a, a other guy saying, no, it wasn't like this, it was like this. And what, I what have. do you do in, in such a situation? And, and that's, that's kind of interesting to me as well because... You know, memory is strange. Memory isn't, memory is fluid. I might have a memory of, I don't know, falling down my bicycle, my blue bicycle when I was five. But if I go back in a time machine, it might have been a green bicycle when I was six. Does that really matter? You know, there's still a core of truth there. And I think, you know, the way people are describing space, they're still trying to describe something that was very real, even if maybe some small details get lost or get muddled up. Yeah, and uh, I, th- I think it's a, a very important fact that you're bringing up. We we tend to forget things, um, and and that's why when when you go to court and and you have to describe a crime scene or a a accident, each person has a different perspective on mm. on that same ev- s- series of events, and I, I think that that's the power of of what you're doing is is taking all these stories and concatenating it and and bringing it into one one event. It might not be. 100% accurate, but you're, you're, you're telling a story. And that's the important thing. Exactly. And, and there's a truth to that. And, you know, there's also this fact that trauma does also impact memory. This was, of course, a very traumatic event. So someone might tell a story and they might be smiling and thinking of, I don't know, their grandma used to cook this meal every Sunday in this kitchen and she went to the shop to get this thing. Another guy might have a very different experience. This was where some traumatic event happened to him on the street. And that changes, that impacts the memory, the way that they talk about the space. It paints it differently. Both of these perspectives are true. You know, Both of these perspectives are valid. And that's another thing that I really see being valuable about this method of representing cultural history, virtuality. You're able to present multiple perspectives at once. And you're able to access multiple perspectives at the same time. And all these perspectives are equally valid, you know, because yes, they're subjective. Yeah. And and in terms of the viewer, what, what can people expect when as, as soon as you're done with, with your satire town? Is it going to be a narrative story that, that you're going to tell them? Or are, will, will they be free to explore it and, and see uh, satire town for themselves? So I found that there's a bit of a sweet spot there. If it's too guided, people kind of go for it and say, okay, well, cool, that's what that was. If it's too open-ended, people tend to get a bit overwhelmed and confused. And in the middle, they'll just say, okay, I think I'm done now. I don't know where to go next. So I I want it to be open-ended in that maybe you have a set of three options at a time. And then you take one option and you you go through this narrative journey and then it stops and then you have different options. And it's taking you, it's showing you the same space, the space of Sophia Town, specifically on Good Street but through different perspectives as you access different narratives. And that'll be guided in some sense where you start with stories that are about you know, people moving in or people's original memories, and you end with stories about the eviction. So it will be somewhat open-ended, but not too open-ended, because I find that eventually people just um, kind of don't know where to go yes, next yes. and just lose interest. Yeah, yeah, and if it's too open-ended, then the, the programming side of things becomes... Uh, oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> I don't want to say that, but yeah, it's it's very difficult. It, 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 it needs to be an honest answer because the, the programming that goes into creating such an experience, not, not just the programming, you need the 3D models of, of your houses, your cinemas, your 
every sign, every piece of paper that that needs to be recreated somehow. And and the best way of doing it is is either through doing scans of objects that survived. And you you mentioned that there isn't a lot of objects. Mm. Um, and and then on the other hand, you you can recreate it in in three D software um, in like like Blender. Oh, it's really a marriage of very many different skills. You know, I think about XR virtual reality as being like drawing. If an engineer uses drawing, it does a very different purpose to when an artist draws, mm. to when an architect draws. It's just a tool. If a architect is going to work in VR or an anthropologist or an engineer, they're going to produce very different outcomes, very yes. different applications. It's, it's not so much a field as it is a tool. You know, no one studies drawing, but it's something that so many different disciplines use. So for me, there's still so many different combinations of things in virtuality. I mean, now I'm working with architecture, cultural heritage, and, um, and this technology, and it's producing a certain thing. But even within virtuality, it's 3D modeling, it's texturing, it's animation, it's coding. It's really so many different skills that need to come together to to put this thing together. Yes. yes. And um, oh, that's that's been really. I I almost want to use the word fun. It's been really fun to learn all of that and to see it come together. I mean, it's it's been very difficult, but it, it, it's really rewarding to see something come out of that. Yeah. So, so what what would be your advice for someone wanting to enter into virtual reality? What what do they need to do? What software do you use? Um, Every piece of software that I use is actually open source. Oh, wow. I don't use anything that costs me money, and I don't use any software that I've downloaded illegally. There's been a real shift in the last five years where before it was really dominated by Adobe for Photoshop, um, Autodesk for Revit, all of these things. I mean, they're still dominant, but some very heavy hitters have come out recently which are completely free to use and, I, in my opinion, do a better job than those software. So I use software like Blender, which is completely free to use. It's not a big piece of software even. It doesn't need internet. And then I use um, something like the Unreal Engine, and then there are some other auxiliary pieces of software I use to kind of work with planning and so on. Yes, yes. If you want to start with this... Buy yourself a internet, make sure you have a decent internet connection and just go into YouTube. I taught myself this just basically from YouTube tutorials, honestly. And um, yeah, and, and yeah. That, that, that's true. I mean, you're, you're an architect working in virtual reality. You taught yourself using um, YouTube tutorials. I'm a geneticist that also used YouTube to, to start creating these things. And it's, it's difficult, it is challenging. Um, but it, it's so worthwhile mm. seeing your your thoughts coming to life on a computer screen and then entering into virtual reality mm. and, and truly experiencing um, what what it is that you've you've created. And and you know in South Africa there's still a bit of a wow factor. It's maybe not as common as it is in some countries to see this technology. Most people haven't experienced this technology yet. I mean, I only experienced this for the first time last year honestly mm. which is really not that long ago considering what i do so and there's so much work out there there's so many pe where people are so open to this new technology if you can be one of the first to kind of have those skills you can very easily build a career out of it yes. yeah. and in south africa there's a lot more opportunity here. there's a lot more going on than i think most people realize yeah no de definitely i mean we we are leaders in, in the world on, on the field of virtual reality and, and augmented reality in, in the creation of these experiences. 
one one of the best selling virtual reality games was developed in in Cape Town. So so we're seeing we're seeing a, a lot of people from South Africa really competing with your San Francisco based mm. um, Silicon Valley companies and doing great for themselves. And South Africans don't realize this. I think we always have a bit of an inferiority complex. We think Europe, America, Japan, whatever, they're 20 years ahead of us, maybe one day. This is not true. We actually have some real advantages in South Africa in this field. And, you know, um, I can think of the example that you told me earlier about you going to the States and looking at their programs and seeing, okay, it's actually not that much better than what we're able to produce. I met with uh, a, a woman from Germany yesterday who works in 4IR, and she was saying, yeah, like what I'm seeing here, you've got so much to teach us, actually. Yes. And um, we just need to get over the fact that we, we actually can compete globally. We actually have a lot to offer the world. It's mm -hmm. not the world that we're constantly needing to learn from. We actually have so much to teach. Yes, yes. You know? And, and Africans has this, we, we've, we've got this, hard-working ethic, and, and we can make things work with the minimum amount of money. This is our big advantage. Um, like, like you said, all, all the resources is available as, as open source mm. um, software or at least free software, um, and, and it, anyone can start doing this. This is our biggest um, our advantage, I think, and it's why South African talent is so sought after in the developed world. We know how to do a lot with not that much resources. Mm. You know, you were telling me about the story in the States of um, this app in VR that the, the university wanted to build. And the professors came up with the idea. They presented it. Okay, everyone's happy. They paid however millions of dollars to a private company who to build it. It was built. They presented it, wrote a paper about it. Here, I need to come up with the idea. I need to build it. I need to learn how to build it. I need to present it. You know, from yeah. start to finish, you are involved in some stage because you're working with limited resources. Yes. And that is a recipe for making experts because you're involved on every single stage. And through that, you're able to you know, optimize things, you're able to learn, you're able to see where things can improve. You're not, it's not so specialized. You're, you become a real generalist in the field. Yes, yes. And, and that, that positions you well to compete with anyone in, in the world. Exactly. Now, this, this project is, is done, um, it's a transdisciplinary project that, that you're doing. It's between the Department of, of um, Architecture and then the Department of Multimedia. Um, yes, it is. The PhD is in multimedia um, because it's, you know, quite a new topic. I think there isn't a dedicated faculty, so multimedia mm. seemed to make the most sense. But like I said, it's, it's a very interdisciplinary project because of the nature of the tool. I'm working with um, a guy from anthropology who's helping me with the interviews. Um, you know, I'm working with people from architecture as well who are helping with um, the sourcing of the material, all these different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it really is, like I said, it's like drawing. You can't say department of drawing. It's just a tool. So it, it works between many different faculties and many different um, topics. Yeah, and, and that's how we're progressing science bec because we're marrying different sciences that would never have been mm. combined um, in, in normal in the normal daily lives. I, I mean, I've seen work originating from botany and, and mining that's not re related to rehabilitation. We're, we're seeing a lot of new innovative disciplines evolving from, from this new technology. And even before the term 4IR was coined, I think this is where 
work was heading anyway. We're moving towards having to be generalists more than specialists. You know, in my dad's day, you could work for a company, you could retire at that company. I don't think that's really the nature of work anymore. You need to be really adaptable. You need to become a generalist. You need to be able to offer many different skills in many different fields. That's kind of where things have been heading anyway. Yes, and, yes. I, and I think the whole 4IR revolution has just supercharged that, yeah. or will. And, and, and uh, what goes with that is you need to constantly upskill yourself to, to be able to use these new technologies. Absolutely, so, absolutely. So, so that. You know, to give you an example, I started with this project in March of 2021. Okay. I had to learn myself. I haven't worked in VR before that, honestly. I had to teach. I worked in video games and video game architecture. So VR is a, is a natural step from that, but I haven't worked in VR. I had to teach myself how to implement, let's say, lighting. Lighting is implemented very differently in VR than a traditional computer game. By the time the project was finished six months later, the techniques I taught myself to implement lighting was obsolete. It was done automatically. You know, we talk about technology moving fast. It's a very fast-moving stream. But to actually be inside of that stream, you realize, oh, my goodness, this really is very fast. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, now, where are we in 2022, end of 2022? There's so many more things that are no longer needed that I, that I had to teach myself. That's now obsolete. That's the pace of this. It's, mm. it's absolutely insane. Yeah, it's it's mind-boggling. And, and how uh, big tech companies like your Microsoft, Unity, Unreal are developing this this novel technology mm. and making it easier for for people like us who aren't computer specialists to to enter into this field um, they, they're making it easier but also you need to be constantly on on top of what what is happening what's the newest things happening mm. and how how do I implement this in into my my experiences so in, in terms of your your research, um, you're, you're being guided by multimedia. That's uh, Anthony Ambana mm. is your supervisor there and, and Denver Hendricks from architecture. Um, and and yeah, I, I can think they, they should be very proud of, of what it is that you're doing. Oof, let's so see let's see when it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's say it's done. When when do you plan on having the experience done and dusted? And what, what's the plan going forward? I hope I can... The number one goal of this, actually, is for it to to be deployed as part of the museum's exhibition. Okay. If, if that's not the case, I don't really know what I'm doing it for. Okay, for so a PhD, but still. Yeah, yeah. So you want to give back to society. You yeah, want I saw a real need. And, you know, you're doing a PhD anyway. Might as well do something that can contribute, that can be used in the real world. Yes. I think it's a wasted opportunity when it kind of just becomes a cognitive exercise. So that's the number one goal. But I'm hoping it can go beyond that. But we'll see. Um, when it should be done. So I have a prototype that I've been displaying and it was quite amazing. I had it shown at the Sophia Town Remembrance Day and, you know, that was really important for me because if the reception wasn't well there, then clearly something was wrong because, mm. you know, it's a very sensitive topic at the yes. end of the day and, you you know, people might not want to actually relive that. So the, the reaction was very positive, especially from ex-residents. So I've started to build up a relationship with them the interviews are ongoing. I hope to have the experience completed by the end of 2023. That's my hope. But I'll. But but you never know how, how things might go. So um, it might happen in 2024. There's also things on the museum side. Things move slowly when you're an NGO. They might not have the funding for it in time. But 
we'll see how things fall in place. Yes, yes. But I'm I'm confident it will be deployed. Um, they're very excited about it, and um, we've been having very productive chats with them. Okay, and that, that's excellent. And any any plans on showcasing it at international events? Um, yes, you see, this is why I'm saying at minimum I want it to be exhibited at the museum, which which it will. They're very keen for that, but. I think it would be incredible if this thing is worthwhile to, to to put it into international shows, to put it into international competitions for virtual reality, especially because it's an all South African team building this. I think that's really that's really special. If we can produce something that can actually, you know, even if it's just nominated, even if it doesn't win or whatever, but that operates at that level, that gets awareness at that level. And it's a completely South African team that built it, which it which it is currently. You know, the team yes. that's that I'm leading it, but the team that's working with me, they're all South Africans. I think um, that that could be really special, and that could be really um, that could be really quite something. Oh, uh, so, so speaking of sensitive subjects, um, and and I, I guess you've been asked this quite quite a few times. You're a white Afrikaans guy, recreating something that was demolished during apartheid. How how's the reception been in in terms of of you going into Sophia Town, going to the Travel Huddleston Memorial, and and just overall how how have you experienced it? Yeah, this isn't um, something that I'm not aware of. It's definitely something that I've thought about before and been asked before, and I think it's an important question to ask. You know, I guess the first thing that I can say is that it's not just me. I'm leading this project, I'm building the actual experience, but I'm working with a team and it's a diverse team of which I actually am the only, you know, white person at the end of the day. So so there's that and, you know, it, it's important to recognize that. Then the other thing that I can say is from the start, I've really tried to be aware of this kind of, not falling into this kind of white guilt, white savior, I'm trying to, um, what do you call it? I'm trying to do this for the sins of my ancestors kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Because then it really becomes about you. And, you know, that's not productive. That's not doing anything for anyone except maybe your own conscience. So the way I've been trying to look at this from the start is that I'm taking information directly from ex-residents. It's not my impression of Sophia Town. It's not my idea of what it used to be because it's not my story to tell i'm trying to take stories take real accounts from people who live there and just be a mediator for that into virtual reality mm. as much as i can of course some bias will come in of course um the lady's gonna tell me the bricks were red and my red bricks will look different to her red bricks because you know there's just some level of of uh, imprint that you make as a creative when you're making something but trying to mitigate that as much as possible has kind of been there from the start of this project. And then I suppose it also opens up a bigger conversation. You know, why am I one of the first South Africans to know how to do this? Why am I one of the first South Africans that has these skills? You know, of course, um, I had certain opportunities. I was able to go to university. I was able to do my master's. I was able to teach myself how to do this on the in on internet, on YouTube, whatever it may be. I've had, you know, obviously someone has opened those doors for me. So from this as well, you know, th that that's a bigger conversation that I'm one of the first to be able to do this. 
But then also, I think it's a bit cynical to to just sit with these skills and not do anything with yes. it. You know, again, there's a very small time frame for doing a project like this because the people that we are interviewing are in their 80s, in their 90s even. So there's you can't also just sit and wait for, for things to get better, which is why with this, I've also been teaching. I've also been engaged with learning students at the University of Johannesburg, the majority of which aren't white, you know, on how to build these apps. And we've actually had some a lot of success and they've come up with some really cool ideas. So it's a starting point. We have a long way to go as South Africa, but I think we can't just not do anything about it. Mm. If, you know, it's not ideal, I suppose, that it's starting with me, but that's where it's starting. And as long as it doesn't stop there, I think... I think that's that could be a good yeah, thing. Yeah. No, I, I think you know you you are the biographer of Sophia Town. That, that's how I see it. Um, you you are collecting information and and then writing a story. The, the, the fact that it happens to be in virtual reality that that mm. makes it unique. Mm. But it, it's still ultimately a story that mm. that you are telling, mm. and and that that gets me excited. And and we need more people to to be involved in this. And and. As you rightfully said, you're starting this and, and you're finding a, a productive workflow for how, how we can recreate these, these experiences, uh, these, these lost um, cultural heritage. Mm. And that, that's going to be in the public domain for anyone to use. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, and with the museum, you know, they work with a lot of school kids, they work in a lot of disadvantaged areas. This is something that can have a broader reach. So, you know, to kind of make it about me doesn't doesn't do that impact yes, that it yes. could have justice and and just as an added thing at the end of the day you know i, I am an afrikaans guy i'm one of the first born into the news of africa i'm from a staunch afrikaans town mm. you, I, you you were born in uh, i was I born in emlatleni uh, 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 oh i was born in 1996 1996 so in a sense, you know, even if it's coming from the other side, there's a history there that also belongs to me in some sense that's been grappled with, mm. you know, by all South Africans. Yes, yes. And and you're you're busy writing the new history of South Africa. And I, I think that's that's amazing. It's, I, it's I, a big job, but I hope I I hope I'm busy mediating the history. No, but that, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. No, it's excellent. Well, Isaki, it's been fun having you on, on the show. Thank you so much for coming in. We, we really appreciate it. And it, it's um, exciting to see what you're doing on, on uh, Sophia Town. I'm looking forward to experiencing Sophia Town mm. for, for myself as well and, and learning about our lost cultural heritage. Mm. Um, it's, it's really something that we need to focus on more. And I, I like what you're doing. And especially um, since we're, we're just um, past Heritage Day and celebrating Heritage Month, I, I think this is an excellent opportunity for, for people to start engaging with their heritage, with their, their past, and, and really opening up conversations on, on the topic. Mm. So, so thank you for coming in. Thanks. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah. I can't believe how quickly that went. <laughs> it, time flies when you're having fun. On, on that note, thank you so much for joining in to this, this podcast. We, we really appreciate your support. If you've got any ideas for future topics, please do send them through to, to my email address. Um, it's hermanm at uj.ac.za. It will be on, on the screen as well. But for those listening, I'll repeat. 
hermanm at uj.ac.za. And we're looking forward to continuing these conversations on how 4IR uh, technologies is used in, in changing the African continent for, for the better. My name is uh, Herman Meiber, and it was my pleasure having you today. Thanks. Mm -hmm.